Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. And this is Music to Anyone's Ears. That's the Watar Orchestral Ensemble, performing at the restored Al Rabia Theatre in Mosul, the first event on its stage since Daesh was driven from the city. It was a joyful occasion, but it contained in it the constant reminder of what Mosul and its people had endured before getting to this point. And that's what we're looking at this time. How do people get past the terrible things that organisations like Daesh inflict upon them? How do communities rebuild once the regime has gone? What are the biggest obstacles they face? Or as we're calling this episode, is there life after terror? To talk about this question, I'm joined by our regular panellists, historian Omar Mohammed, who as the Mosul Eye kept the world informed of what was really happening in his home city during its occupation by Daesh and who is still working for its recovery. Welcome, Omar. Hi, Adnan. And Dr. Haroro Ingram, a senior research fellow with the Programme on Extremism at George Washington University. Hey, Haroro. Hi, Adnan. Happy to be here. And we're also welcoming today Frank Philip, country director for Iraq for the Halo Trust, which works to clear mines and other ordnance, and as it says, to create safe and secure environments in some of the world's most vulnerable communities. Frank, just to start off, um, can you just tell me a little bit about what that means? What does the Halo Trust do? Well, the Halo Trust is the largest and um, long-time uh, established uh, humanitarian demining organisation. We've been operating since 1988 in Afghanistan. Uh, and since then, we've, we've expanded all over the globe. We recruit from the communities in which we're operating uh, and we train them up and, and where possible... We uh, develop that talent to become the managers and the, and the leaders of um, uh, HALO programmes. Thank you. Omar, if I could start with you. You lived under Daesh. Can you ever remember thinking, how will we get over this? What Daesh did is not just about destroying buildings. It's not just about destroying the infrastructure of the city. Daesh destroyed completely the trust of the people in themselves and their survival. The long history of violence that we have went through is part of the tradition of Mosul now that you always keep food for what they call it the dark days. The people started with recovering the old market of Mosul. And once this old market functioned again, the people started coming back. The families in the neighborhoods and then with other kind of projects in order to rebuild their religious life that was heavily damaged by Daesh. A very slow process, but very effective. Haroro, um, going back to what Omar just said about the long history of trauma, especially in that country. I mean, I, I served in the Iraq war in 2003 and in Britain, we look at the Iraq war and that's a big thing to us. But actually, zooming out, Iraq's been at war every 10 to 15 years since it was created in the 20s. How does that affect people? There is a really extraordinary history 
of trauma uh, that you are dealing with in uh, the example of Iraq. Let's just go back a few decades. Let's stop at the 80s and move forward from there. You have the Iran-Iraq war, enormous human cost that helped to drive and act as a catalyst for um, sectarian tensions in both countries, which would be cyclically exploited by violent political actors. You move forward into the 90s and you have the Gulf War. You keep moving through the 90s. And we're talking about wars. Let's talk about the crippling sanctions that were placed upon Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people who were um, killed, children that were killed. And then you get to the Iraq war. You have just these decades and decades of trauma upon trauma um, and hardship. And these were strategically and brutally exploited by groups like ISIS. We're focusing on ISIS, but there are actually a lot of different groups that were operating, violent extremist groups that were operating. I think it's so important for us to understand uh, that this history of trauma is not an anomaly to Iraq. It is replicated in so many other locations where ISIS have been active. Frank, you're working in Iraq right now to try and um, help rebuild it. And I just wanted to talk about, you know, the rebuilding, the recovery from this kind of devastation. You know, how, how important is it that there was this city that was destroyed and that we need to rebuild it? Probably the, the best way to illustrate what we're talking about is what we're doing in Beji, which is a significant sized town uh, in Saladin because it was fought over and so intensely and for so long. Um, the town was completely flattened. Uh, a lot of the people that we employ um, are returnees. Some um, remained during the Daesh occupation and you know, had to suffer all the, the hardships, but the majority will have fled and become displaced uh, people. As we've been working and becoming accepted as part of the fabric of the community, we have the benefit, because we've been working there for two years now, to have seen not just what we've achieved in terms of uh, removing explosive hazards, which continue to kill and injure, uh, sadly, uh, but we've also seen the small city recover. People have the confidence to, to return, and increasingly they're coming back in numbers. They're trying to rebuild their shattered homes. They're trying to re-establish their livelihoods and attempt to re- revive normality. I mean, I just absolutely take my hat off to the Iraqi people wherever I come across them, notwithstanding the fact that you know they have suffered uh, decades of trauma. But they're extremely resilient people, and they sim- quite simply just get on with it. Omar, when I was in Mosul in 2018, I met um, a family and they were looking over the destruction of their house and their house had been completely destroyed and they were showing me like little lines of bricks on the floor and saying, you know, this is where our kitchen used to be, this is where our bathroom used to be. Everything they knew had disappeared. How did you come back from that? We are not just speaking about this, Adnan. We are speaking also about other scenes where women or men, I mean parents, who have lost almost every member of their family sitting on the top of a completely destroyed house, not looking to restore the house. They are just trying to retrieve the corpses and bodies of their dead people in order to properly bury them. It's not the war that we are worried about now. How can we survive the consequences of the war? And I believe that there is something very important in order to help the people of Mosul to overcome this uh, trauma is by understanding 
all the traumas were built layers after layers. Just to go deep into the idea of going back to normality, we do not want to go back to normality because the normality itself wasn't actually normal. It was itself a traumatized normality because our problem actually goes long before 2014. Destruction takes many forms, buildings, human bodies, but terrorists are often just as focused on eradicating things you can't see, ideas, knowledge, thought. Which is why when Daesh took over Mosul, they particularly targeted the libraries. The University of Mosul had one of the largest libraries in the Middle East. It had more than one million books, many of them rare and ancient. During their time in the city, Daesh completely destroyed it, the books and the building, in what UNESCO called one of the most devastating acts of destruction of library collections in human history. Mahmoud al Kaldawi is the founder of the Recif Initiative, which is focusing on trying to restore books to the city. What does he remember of that time? You, you couldn't buy any book. Most of the books, they were prohibited. People used to buy books secretly during uh, their rule. In fact, it is a bad uh, feeling when you see that uh, the libraries, the books are burnt, and uh, many of these books are very important. They are very old books, and they are scripts. You, you couldn't find these scripts in other countries. So it was a very bad feeling for us. And why does he think they did it? For each terrorist group, they, are, uh, they represent a specific ideology. So they have their own ideas. For this reason, they are afraid of the books which are not suitable for their ideas and uh, their thoughts. Even the Islamic books uh, in, in other dictatorships, they stop the widespread of the books which are not suitable for their uh, ideas and thoughts. And Daesh is, is a dictatorship, just like the other dictatorships. So Mahmoud, together with many of those who had watched this attack on the psyche of his city and his people, decided to do something. He wrote a book called 66 Projects for the Rebirth of Mosul. One of them was about books. One of these ideas was called the second-hand book market. Through Facebook, I asked the question, since there, there is a weekly market for bicycles, motors, and belts, why don't we found uh, a specific uh, market for the second-hand books? People, in fact, uh, they were very positive in dealing with this idea. And then we changed the idea and we decided uh, we choose one of the sidewalks of University of Mosul. It was just like a cultural street for each Friday afternoon, uh, people uh, gather together in this area, photographers, writers, owners of bookshops, artists, and so do. And they uh, display their photographs, paintings, uh, handicrafts, and of course, their books. So uh, first of all, it was a local idea, but then uh, many people from, from other countries, many channels, radios, and journals, they come to Rasif al-Kutub uh, in order to report about this idea. But after that, you know, some people helped us. IOM helped us, and then USAID also helped us in uh, building the area again. But, but first of all, when we start, we didn't use money. It was just like uh, an activity. 
and alhamdulillah we succeeded in this activity. Haroro, is there a, a an effort to basically bring people back to their homes? There are efforts, um, both um, in Iraq and, and beyond, but it's been deeply flawed. So much of the problems have their roots in a misunderstanding of the fundamental problem itself. There is a tendency to see these populations as fundamentally part of the problem, that they were somehow complicit with ISIS. And there are segments of the population that were, but for the vast majority, uh, they are and were victims of ISIS. They were coerced. And we must never forget that. And we must implement that understanding uh, in the way that we approach a whole range of different policy responses, including the issue of uh, repatriation. There's kind of this trifecta of stigma, shame, and fear that kind of compounds this sense of trauma, uh, both individual, but also kind of this collective trauma that emerges. And it really does hang like a kind of a pall over everything. You can feel it and you can sense it viscerally when you're on the ground, when you're talking to people, the way that people will respond um, to sounds and to smells just instinctively. I also think it's important, particularly for policy developers, for, for program designers and implementers, to recognise that where there is acute stress, there is a steep cognitive tax that people must pay. And it means that they're susceptible to cognitive biases. It means that they're susceptible to making decisions that are seemingly uh, illogical uh, and irrational. Um, Kids will tend to struggle in school, um, youth in universities and jobs. It is a truth that needs to be uh, taken into account when we're developing um, programs to help these communities and to help that rebuilding process. Frank, um, you've talked about donor fatigue. Who's paying for you to be there? Whose responsibility do you think it is to fix Iraq? Well, the international donor community has traditionally provided much of the money. The Iraqis themselves, um, the Iraqi military, do a lot of clearance. We get some bilateral funding from a number of different countries. But the majority of our funding um, comes through Uh, the UN Mine Action Service, which uh, basically act as an agent to uh, manage uh, the funding provided by backing donors. The the concern is the world's got to recover from COVID uh, (laughs) going forward. And uh, I think there is a danger of donor fatigue. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, And a big part of my job is to sell what we do and to encourage uh, international donors And in time, I hope the Iraqis themselves are going to take much more of a a predominant role in uh, in funding mine action themselves. Omar, so Frank is talking about how the rest of the world is doing things like mine clearance. Has there been enough international interest in helping Mosul? World response was really important. And I here refer specifically to the work that uh, UNESCO is doing in Mosul, the reconstruction and recovery of the most symbolic uh, historical sites in Mosul. You have the EU working tirelessly on the uh, recovery of the agriculture. There was a beautiful project that brought back the irrigation system of Salamia town in Nineveh Plains, which brought back all the farmers. When you bring them back their irrigation system, you don't have to give them too much money. They know how to do things. But we have to be careful, Adnan, 
because that's not the end of the story. We are not dealing with normal people. We are dealing with traumatized people who might at one point uh, uh, collapse. The most important aspect of this, Adnan, is we have to give back the narrative to the people of Mosul themselves. The narrative that was taken away from them by Daesh, and that narrative is that Mosul and its people can recover, and they can also restore their trust in themselves, which will help not only Mosul, but the rest of the world. So Haruro Omar is saying that there is help, that there are recovery projects happening, but that it's also not just about what we do, but how we do it. It comes down to what we define as recovery. And this is going to need to be a phased process. Uh, But what's absolutely crucial is ensuring that the local population, that they have a central role to play in how these policies are developed. And for far too long, we pay lip service to getting um, local perceptions of this. For far too long, those companies that receive the multi-million dollar contracts and then get their kind of satellite companies in Iraq and and in in the Philippines and other places like that to do the work, it's more often than not uh, lip service. Um, It's symbolic. Recovery efforts require being on the ground. It requires developing precisely the kind of relationships that Frank has spoken so articulately about. Frank, how do you or how do we keep people motivated? How do we explain to people and show people that recovery is is just going to take a long time? It's an ongoing process. I mean, from top to bottom in Halo and, and any other um, humanitarian mine action organisation, um, we invest a huge amount of time speaking to, to governments, um, embassies, and, and any other sort of, uh, stakeholders, um, and that includes Iraqi stakeholders. We, you know, we, we, we spend a great deal of time in liaison uh, um, with uh, people on the ground, people in, in country, at government level, at national level, and beyond. At the moment, the current strategic plan they're working on is looking forward to 2028. Iraq will not be clear of explosive hazards by by 2028. It's going to take another 10 years. And it's going to take um, a huge effort to keep people interested in in continuing to fund. Because there are are other priorities, global priorities elsewhere. I I mentioned the, the COVID recovery. I mean, it remains to be seen. The pot seems to be getting smaller. Um, but we need to be smarter about how we use the available funding so it isn't wasted and it goes to the right place and it has a, the correct effect. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process um, and, and we have to keep the world interested in the problem. And, you know, and when we've, we've finished clearing what um, Daesh um, has left behind, it'll be time to return to the legacy uh, contamination, the, the minefields that are all up, you know, the length of the, the border with Iran. It's, it's a massive problem. It's the most explosive contaminated country in the world. Omar, do you want to come in on that? The people of Mosul, as, as an example, reconciliation is not part of their uh, uh, vocabularies. The reconciliation works without naming it. We are speaking about the social cohesion. What is the social cohesion? The people do not understand these kind of concepts. It's not part of their linguistic history. What they understand is that Mosul have lived over the history with neighborhoods like the Jewish neighborhood, the Christian neighborhood, the Muslim neighborhood. And then 
they created a space where they meet, which is the old market of Mosul. And that's why I mentioned from the very beginning that the first thing the people of Mosul did, they put lots of money and they started reconstructing the shops because they all know without going through these kind of like catchy terminology of, of the international organizations that the only way for them to come back to their at least normality is the market because they all meet there. They are not ignorant, but they know how to restore their life. They have been trying to tell the international organizations that the way you are doing things is wrong. Just to try to listen to us once. Could I jump in on, on something there? Um, here we are in 2021 talking about where the funding has gone. The purse strings are being pulled tight again. Not a handful of years ago, the trough was full and the companies were feeding. This is another one of the great tragedies, is that you go to these conflict zones when it is front and centre in the media, there is an extraordinary amount of money available for companies. Having travelled to communities devastated by this group, motivation amongst the civilian population is very rarely an issue. These are people that want to rebuild their lives. The problem is insufficient support. Support that is either flawed at its foundations from a policy or a strategic or a programmatic mistake, it's flawed in its implementation, or it's flawed in its resourcing. The motivation to survive and to continue is um, always there. And the people that Haruro is talking about are people like Mahmoud. And what started as an initiative in a Mosul side street became part of a worldwide campaign that resulted in thousands and thousands of books being sent from across the globe to restock Mosul University's library and others in the city. Why are books, their loss and their restoration, so important to Mahmoud? Books have a symbolic feeling or representation. You know that many people nowadays, they don't read the paper books, okay? But the book itself, it, it is a symbol. It represents knowledge, science, art and culture. So even for those people who are not reading books, they feel sad when they see that the book market in Mosul is, is, is destroyed. The book represents culture. We didn't just lost the books. We, we lost a large number of mosques, churches, schools, and many buildings which have a historical, religious, and cultural importance. We can't buy books nowadays, but it is difficult to restore these historical uh, buildings. We feel happy when we see these books come back to, uh, to Mosul. It, it has a symbolic meaning. You feel very happy. Omar, uh, could I ask you, do you think you'll ever return to Mosul? No. You don't think you'll ever go back? Go back home? No, um, it's, it's a very tough question, and it's, it's very, very, um, it's psychologically a very heavy question that I always try to avoid. But the city that I I knew once, 
is unfortunately gone. The city of Mosul where I built my memories, where I built the images of uh, uh, my knowledge and my character, my identity, uh, 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 my connection to the architecture, my connection to the river, my connection to even the sky of the city. This city no more exists. What exists now and what I am trying to do now is to help the next generation to find a space to live on and to build their own memories. Last question I want to ask to all of you, and you can be honest. Are you hopeful about the recovery? Haroro? Yes, I am hopeful of the recovery because I've spent time with um, so many of these communities. And I actually think that there is an opportunity with the reduced funding that will force a more streamlined and efficient approach, a more methodical and evidence-based approach, a more transparent and accountable approach. We absolutely must be hopeful. We must continue to be methodical and evidence-based because if we are not, then we absolutely cede to this horrible group. Frank? I'm optimistic as well. Um, and with improved coordination and more strategic vision and less siloing of, um, of activity and funding, I think then we will ultimately have the optimum effect, one hopes. It's going to take a long time. Despite that, the Iraqi people, they will, despite the ongoing problems of explosive hazards and everything else that, that is wrong with the country, they will help themselves to make it better with greater stakeholder engagement um, and coordination in particular, um, we'll get there. Omar, final word. When I look at those young people who clean the theatre, that is partially damaged and destroyed. When you look inside the theatre, the roof is destroyed, the walls are destroyed, yet they cleaned it using their hands and just simple materials. And they decided that an orchestra and a concert should be held in Mosul. When I look at those young people and their resilience, being a historian and part of being a historian, you should be always pessimistic. I am changing this reality now and I say I am more than optimistic about the future of Mosul and its people because I believe in the resilience and power of those young people who despite all the struggle and the horrors they lived yet they are creating a beautiful space that I myself never imagined I will ever see in Mosul. I'd like to thank Haroro Ingram, Omar Mohammed, Frank Philip and Mahmoud Al-Kaldawi for giving us some insight into what getting over terrorism might look like. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Search for us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the series, please do leave us a star rating and a review. It makes a huge difference to how many people find us. And of course, follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
like the next one, where we ask, is extremist violence unforgivable? Three people who have had direct experience of terrorist acts tell us how they got through them and learned about the meaning of forgiveness. I'm Adnan Sawa. Until the next time, goodbye. Goodbye.